0: Alright, we're in the midst of a three-part series on on one verse. The verse is Philippians 3.10. Last week we looked at the power of knowing God. The verse says this, that I might know Him, so that's the power of knowing God, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. This week, We look at the power of new life. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's the power of new life. Paul had all kinds of of natural gifts. Paul wrote this verse. We can assume that he was smart. He was certainly well educated. He sat under the teaching of the best available, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Paul was passionate and fervent and enthusiastic. Paul was a big personality and he could motivate people. He could get things done. We know that he was articulate. We know that he was able to put together coherent thoughts and arguments. He was was what we would call an apologist. An apologist is a person who offers an argument in defense of something. In our case, Christianity. An apologist is a champion or a spokesman for the faith. An evangelist shares their faith. An apologist defends their faith. An evangelist will share their experience, but an apologist can lay out the argument and make a coherent and rational case for Christianity. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now the word translated answer in that verse is the word apologia in Greek which is where we get the word apologetics and it means to give a defense Paul had the ability to defend his cause but let's not forget that at the first his cause was persecuting the church Paul Hated the church. He he used all of his natural gifts to that end. Paul was a lost and angry man. He had all kinds of natural gifts. and And he had some great educational opportunities. But apart from God, his life was in vain. I don't know what made Paul so hateful toward Christians. Perhaps it was just his loyalty to Judaism. After all, he he had invested his time and his resources and, and, and tons of effort into learning all that there was to know about Orthodox Judaism. And now someone was telling him there was another way. Perhaps he felt threatened or insulted. I'm not sure. I meet people who who are angry with the church, and and so do you. And there are a myriad of reasons, I suppose. Let me give you five that I commonly come across. Number one, and these are, again, five reasons that people are angry with the church. Number one is perceived hypocrisy. Unbelievers see Christians stumble And write off Christianity as a farce because the adherents aren't perfect. What they don't realize is Christians never claimed to be perfect, just forgiven. The second reason is genuine hypocrisy. A hypocrite is an actor. First of all, going back to reason number one, somebody stumbling in their struggle is not hypocrisy. Okay, a a hypocrite is an actor, and some churchgoers are just that actors, and nothing hurts Christianity more. The Pharisees were actors on the outside. Jesus said, You're like a whitewashed sepulcher, you're like a, a, a tomb, a grave that's all whitewashed on the outside but on the inside, you're filled with dead men's bones. Hear me, church. Professing Christians, professing Christians who praise God on Sunday but live like the devil the rest of the week do more to set back the cause of Christianity than any persecutor of the church could ever hope to. Number three, talk about reasons people hate the church or are angry with the church, self-righteousness. Nothing is less winsome, and I'm talking about our self-righteousness, nothing is less winsome than an air of superiority. Imagine, think about this, imagine being someone searching for spiritual truth, okay? You're on this journey, you're having some sort of a, spiritual awakening, and you're searching for spiritual truth, and you run into an arrogant, self-righteous, born-again Christian who thinks they're better than everyone else. Think about how that would affect your search for truth. I was asking a group, a class that I was teaching, how to define Christianity, how they define Christianity And one guy said, a Christian is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that doesn't exactly define Christianity, but I love the way it paints the picture of how we bring nothing to the table, and we shouldn't expect anyone else to bring anything to the table either. We're saved by grace. Through faith, the Bible says, not of works, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. The last thing we should be as Christians is self-righteous. Number four, a bad church experience as a youth. Some people are angry with the church because of of a bad church experience as a youth. And there are lots of people who, who have this sort of love-hate relationship with religion, in one, on one hand, in one sense, they believe in God, but they have an aversion to organized religion. It most often stems from a bad experience as a child, and, and that experience can range all the way from simply being bored in church as a kid all the way to being sexually abused by clergy. Most often, it lands somewhere in the middle, like being forced to attend church as a child or or being dragged to church by the arm. I've I've heard all those stories, and so have you. Whatever it is, it's created a resentment toward the church. And the final reason this morning that uh, we're angry with the church, people are angry with the church, is a love of the world. Sometimes people just love their sin. They love their sinful lifestyle. And so they have to find someone to be mad at to justify their bad behavior in their own life. Now I'm not sure where Paul landed on that list. One thing is clear. He hated the church. He was on his way to Damascus to express his hate by persecuting believers by dragging them out of their house churches to be imprisoned. But Paul's journey would be interrupted. In fact, Paul's life would be interrupted. He would no longer be Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church. He would now be Paul, apostle of God. The story of Paul's conversion is so significant that it's, it's told virtually in its entirety three different times in the Bible. Acts 26, he, he, he stood before Agrippa and told the whole story. Acts 22, he stood before the mob in Jerusalem, and the Bible records him telling the whole story again. And, and then Acts chapter 9, which is we'll, where we'll read from today, it's the original account of the story it says in Acts chapter 9 beginning in verse 1 and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest he desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way which is what the Christian movement had become known as whether they were men or women he would bring them out Bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, verse 3 says, He came near Damascus. Suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks or to kick against the goads. And goads were like a spear with a sharp end that were used to keep cattle heading in the right direction. So the, so, uh, the ox would be, would be pulling, they would be yoked together and, and there would be goads on the side of the, 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 the fixture that held them in place. And if they started to turn, they would... They would push up against the goad, the sharp end of the goad, and it would keep them them on target, on path, on course. And so Jesus says to Paul here, why do you kick against the goads? Verse 6, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what you must do. So Paul At this time, Saul went to Damascus and he was was told there that he would be a witness to all men of what he had seen and heard. He was baptized there in water as a new follower of Jesus Christ. Saul's name would be changed and he would become Paul, apostle to the Gentiles and he would go on to write about half of the New Testament. I mean, that's a... That's a radical encounter. And that's the power of new life. After his dramatic conversion, Paul went to Jerusalem where he saw Peter, James, and John, the leaders of the infant church. Later, he would travel with Barnabas and Timothy and Luke and Silas to places like modern-day Greece and Turkey and and the surrounding areas for for one purpose, and and one purpose only, to preach the gospel. Paul suffered much in that effort to preach the gospel. He, He served several stints in various prisons. He endured beatings and was even shipwrecked, all for the sake of the gospel. Eventually, Paul would give his life for the cause. Paul's story pictures a significant life change. Before his conversion, he persecuted the church. After, he preached the gospel. Prior to conversion, he he hated the church. After his conversion, he loved it so much that he devoted every waking moment to its success. Prior to his conversion, he was consenting to the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. After his conversion, Paul was beheaded by Nero. Before his conversion, he was Saul, which means prayed for. After, he was Paul, which means little or small. Indeed, someone must have been praying for Paul. And he went from haughty and menacing and threatening to small in his own eyes. He went from proud to humble, from self-righteous to used by God. It all speaks of an encounter with God that transforms the heart and mind and leads to a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of living. It's the power of new life. Except a man be born again, it says in John chapter 3, the words of Jesus himself. Except a man be born again, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Christianity is the religion that comes from God. The religion that comes from God is the only religion that can lead to God. Now, I didn't say the Assemblies of God is the only religion that comes from God, right? Don't leave here and tell people that Tom said the Assemblies of God is is the only place you can get saved. Because I never said that, right? I said Christianity is the only religion that comes from God. And so, Christianity is the only religion that leads to God. Christianity, in order to effectively serve Him, in order to effectively make a difference for Him, we must be born of the Spirit. It's the power of the Spirit that purifies the heart. It's the power of the Spirit that renews the mind. It's resurrection power that gives us a new capacity for knowing and loving God. It's what it means to be born again. It's resurrection power. It's the power of new life. And the Scriptures are rife with it. So this is all through the Bible. This isn't a one and done Scripture that that uh, says it once, and then we have to extrapolate from it to to find the doctrine or find the principle. This is a theme that runs from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. the The scriptures are are full of the concept, the idea. Of being born again. Which is the power of new life. First Peter 1.3 says. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who according to his great mercy. Has caused us to be what? To be born again. Of a living hope. Through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So think about that one verse. It says born again. It talks about. Living hope. It talks about resurrection power. It's all right there in one verse. Second Corinthians 5:17 7, says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are passed away. Just like Saul, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Not by works of righteousness, Titus 3:5 says, which we have done, not, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Regeneration speaks of renewal and rebirth. Regeneration speaks of the power of new life. Ephesians 2 one and two says and you he has quickened. Do you know what quicken means? Quicken means to be to be brought to life. You he has quickened who were dead in trespass and sins. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world. In time past before prior to conversion you walked according to the course Of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which very clearly speaks of Satan, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. In other words, you were dead, but he quickened you, he raised you up, he brought you out of the grave, and he poured into you the power of new life. Romans 6.4 Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. Here's where we get the ordinance of water baptism. This is what water baptism pictures. Therefore you're buried with Him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father even so you should walk in newness of life. There's a difference between the old and the new. We're talking about resurrection power, that I might know Him, the verse says, and the power of His resurrection. Colossians 2.12, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, or the working of God, who has raised Him from the dead. That's that's resurrection power. We're we're talking about resurrection power. That's life-changing. That's life-altering, life-transforming power. It's the kind of power that turns lives upside down and inside out. It changes us from sinners to saints. It changes the desires of our heart. And it takes us a sinner Bound for hell and changes him and transforms him into a saint that's bound for heaven. Once we were lost, but now we're found. Once we were blind, the Bible says, but now we see. That I might know him, Paul said, and the power of his resurrection. There's nothing quite like resurrection power. In 2 Kings 13, the story's told of a body put buried in Elisha's tomb. So, so Elisha's long buried, long been dead. They're gonna double up, save Kos, and they throw a dead body in with Elisha. And the body, the, the Bible says that when the body touched the bones of Elisha. The dead man came to life. In Acts 5, the power of the New Testament church, this infant church that we're we're talking about as Paul writes here, the infant church was was filled with such tangible power. It was so prevalent that they they would drag sick people into the streets in hopes that Peter's shadow would pass over them. Because when that happened, people were healed. In Acts 19, this is where we read about aprons and handkerchiefs that that had come into contact with the Apostle Paul that were brought to sick people and their diseases left them and evil spirits fled. And even in, in Luke chapter 8, the story of the woman who reached out and touched the hem of, of the garment of Jesus. He wasn't praying for, we had people here praying for you today. This wasn't a woman who went up to Jesus and said, will you pray for me? I'm sick. He was unaware that she was there. She touched the hem of his garment. But the, but the resurrection power was so, so prevalent. It's, it's as though it rubs off. Matthew 27 records that the power of regeneration was so palpable, so rich, so full at the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the earth quaked and rocks split in two and graves burst open and believers who had died were were raised from the dead and made their way into Jerusalem. That's in the Bible. You can look that up. I'm talking resurrection power. I'm talking the power of new life that I might know Him and the power of the resurrection. Resurrection power can take your sinful life and make it new. It can take your meaningless existence and give it an eternal purpose. You cannot encounter resurrection power and one way or another be changed. You'll either become hardened to it by your resistance or you will be broken by it as your spirit comes to life within you. So so what changes with the born-again experience. When you, in other words, when you're, when you're born again, what changes? I've got eight quick hitters for you, all right? What changes with the born-again experience? Number one, there's a sense of freedom and peace. And if any of this resonates with you when I list these things, if it resonates with you, go ahead and say amen, all right? A sense of freedom and peace. The Bible speaks of a peace that passes understanding. In Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith. Remember, I read in another verse, it's not by our own works of righteousness. We're justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith, not by works. And once you figure that out, you see, you don't don't have this peace If you're trying to be justified by your own works, you've got anything but peace. If you're trying to be justified by your own works. The peace comes when we realize I'm justified by faith, not by works. Once you figure that out, you'll experience a peace in your soul, a freedom that comes, that can come only by being right with God. Number two, a growing sensitivity to sin. When you're saved, you cannot stand the thought that it's our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. When When I contemplate that, when I read about the crucifixion, it grieves my heart. With every sin I commit is the distant Sound of the hammer pounding the nails a little deeper into the hands and feet of Jesus. The power of new life has made sin unacceptable. You cannot be saved and content in your sin. If you're born again, number three, there's a big picture mindset. So, what changes when you're born again? You develop a big picture mindset. We think less about the moment and more about eternity. Number four, an increased capacity to love others. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life. How do you know? How do you know if you've passed from death to life? The rest of this verse will tell us, apparently. We know that we've passed from death to life Because we love the brethren. So we have an increased capacity to love others. Number five, more of an interest in God's Word. Jeremiah 15 says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. The born-again person, hear me church, the born-again person will begin to enjoy reading the Word of God. It may have been dull and uninteresting before conversion, but now it has been quickened. It's come to life. The Bible is our rule of faith and conduct. It's how we know right from wrong. It's how we distinguish good from evil. It's our standard for living. We cling to its promises, and those promises strengthen our soul. It's our plumb line. It's our lifeline. Psalm one nineteen one o five, 105. And you know you got a big chapter when it's verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Being born again brings the word of God to life. I trust you found that to be true. And then there's number six. How do you know you're born again? What changes if you're born again? There's a turning from the ways of the world. Listen. If he hasn't changed yet, he hasn't saved yet. There has to be a turning away from the ways of the world. Love not the world, 1 John 2 says, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If we're truly saved, We can no longer look at the world in the same way. For the unsaved, it's all good. There is no right or wrong. Every man just does what's right in his own eyes. But for the believer, there is right and wrong. There is good and evil. There is saved and lost. There is God and Satan. When you're born again, you experience new life. You cannot look at the world the same way any longer. Number seven, there's a desire to please God. Psalm 40 says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, your law is within my heart. When we realize how much Jesus loves us, when we realize everything that Jesus has done for us, a bond is established that compels us to live for him and to strive for him. To please him. Now, those are, those are dangerous words there. Here's what I want you to get out of it it's not a legalistic thing, it's a relational thing. There, there's people in, in my life, you know, some were teachers, some were, were, were mentors, other people in your life, maybe, you know, like a spouse, uh, a parent. They impact your actions, not in a legalistic sense, but because I don't want to let them down. Right? It's a relational thing. And it affects the way I live. Being married to Rhonda affects the way I live because I don't want to let her down. That would break my heart. The last thing in the world I ever want to come home to is my wife crying, saying... You let me down. It's not a legalistic thing. It's a relational thing. And that's how I am with Jesus. I don't want to let Jesus down. And being born again has impacted me that way. I have a desire to please God. Not because I'm afraid of what he'll do to me. But because I have that kind of a relationship with him. That I want to please him. Number eight, a desire to share our faith. So, so how, how do we know that we're born again? What changes if we're born again? I have a desire to share our faith and experiences with others. The Bible says this in Acts 1.8, you shall receive... Power. We're talking about resurrection power, mind you, after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me. Let me read that verse again. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me. Now we may not feel like we're good at these things, right? You don't become instantly an expert at any of this. And we may still have our struggles, but the important thing is the desire of our heart has changed. The flesh may still rear its ugly head, but we're on the other side now. Now our heart longs to please Jesus. We're still far from perfect. We've yet to apprehend, as the Apostle Paul would write, We're still on the journey, and the journey still has its ups and downs, but we've experienced new life. We've tasted of the resurrection power. We're born again. We're washed in the blood of the Lamb, not by works of righteousness, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It's resurrection power. It's the power of new life. let me tell you a weird story loose associations every year at church we fill out a report it's called the acmr and over the years our administrative assistants that we've had have grown to love this thing <laughs> and they're the ones laughing it's a it's a it's a major document that the Assemblies of God sends to us. And and they're just trying to keep their numbers, right? Keep their books, statistically speaking. And so, you know, it asks all kinds of questions, um, attendance questions, financial questions, uh, those types of things. And you guys play way around. And... But the one question that it asks that always troubles me is salvations. So how many salvations did you have? And that always strikes me as a... a, I don't know what the word is. It's not an unproductive question. And I understand why they want to know these things. But here's my problem. If we're looking for raising of hands, okay, sometimes at the end of a service, you know, you've never received Christ, raise your hand. Well, if that's the litmus test, then I would never be counted in there. Okay, I never raised my hand. I didn't respond to an altar call and make my way down the aisle and come. and I, So I'm not counted there. There's some people that raise their hand every time I do that. There's people that will raise their hand every time. So we get 52 salvations out of that guy. (laughs) So so I don't know that it's an accurate measurement, right? And that's my my struggle with it. And, And I don't even know how to get you to experience it. I can't do it for you. I'd give anything to do it for you. I would give anything, if there's someone here that's never encountered Jesus like Paul did, I would give anything to be able to do it for you so that you could taste it and know what that new life is like. I would do that for you in a heartbeat if I could. But I can't. When you're born, your spirit is dormant. The Bible says we're born in sin. And so your spirit is dormant. The the part of you that communes with God is dormant. There's one doorway into that spirit, and it's guarded by the will. So you don't become a Christian just by attending church. You don't become a Christian because your family's a Christian family. Somewhere along the line, you have to open that door by an act of your will. And you have to invite Jesus in. And when Jesus comes in, you experience the power of new life. And that dormant spirit is regenerated. It's it's born again. And there's nothing like that. Alex and Megan Johnson had their baby a couple weeks ago, and it's their first baby. Before before they had the baby, I was telling Alex, "There's, there's nothing like being a dad. And there's nothing I can say to you that would explain it. There's no words to describe it same thing is true of being born again. I, I can't put it into words for you. It's the power of new life. And I want you to experience that. That's why we do what we do. I want to pray for you. If you've never known Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what I'm asking you to do is to open that door by an act of your will. It doesn't just happen. You have to say, Jesus, I invite you I want to give my life to you. I want that radical change that, that Paul had that took him from here to here. No longer Saul, the persecutor of the church, he became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Man. Lord, I pray for the one that's here today and they need Jesus. They do what most people do. They live for themselves. It's all about us. It's all about me. Lord, my prayer today is that they would open the door of their heart, their spirit. They would invite you in. And instead of it being all about me, it would be all about you. It would be all about the kingdom. Life takes on such new meaning and new purpose. It goes from temporal to eternal. So, Lord, we, we do that. We confess our sins. We acknowledge that we fall short. We acknowledge that apart from you, we can, we can do nothing. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Lord, that's me. So, Lord, I choose to surrender myself to you. And as I do, you wash my sins away. It's why you went to the cross. You became the sacrifice for my sins. You paid the price for my sins. And now I want to live to please you. Lord, I pray for the one that would pray that prayer today. I pray, Lord, that that they would find someone to talk to, find someone from the church, to tell that, hey, I made that decision today that Tom was talking about, to open up the door of my spirit by an act of my will to let Jesus in. We thank you for that opportunity today. We thank you for the resurrection power. We thank you for the power of new life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go into another song here briefly. Because there's no better way to respond to what God is doing in your life than through a physical action of worship. But we also have a a moment right here.